Holly, where are you? I can't find you. You've been missing. Carol, I'm over here. Echo, echo, <laughs> echo. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sounds like we're kind of on hiatus again. But look, we wanted to release some of our most popular episodes. We hope you like the Salem Witch Trials, because here it comes again. Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. This sinister castle-like building is said to have inspired H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham Sanitarium in his story, The Thing on the Doorstep, and was also the inspiration for the Batman Universe Arkham Asylum for the Criminally Insane. My story today is of the Danvers State Lunatic Hospital. I love it! And can you believe it? It actually was originally named that. You had me at the word lunatic. Yeah. So this hospital was built in 1874 on Hawthorne Hill in Massachusetts. It is one of the most notorious locations for hauntings, perhaps because Hawthorne Hill was originally known as Salem Village. Yay! Until, yep. Until its official name change in 1752. Perfect. And despite Salem being recognized as the location of all the witch trials, the actual start of these trials took place in 1692 in Salem Village in present-day Danvers, Massachusetts. These trials were later moved to Salem where a bigger building was used at the height of the hysteria and accusations. And even more notable was that the famous judge over these trials... John Hawthorne lived in a home on top of the hill in the exact location where the Danvers Asylum was built. Yeah, girl. Love it. Creepy. Creepy, creepy. It was even nicknamed by locals the Witch's Castle. So already, Holly, we have a location steeped in awful tragedy and death. Yes. And that's before the hospital stories. Yes. So this hospital was built costing about $1.5 million, and there was heated arguments over the building's size, elaborate decor, and cost. The construction began May 1st, 1874, and the building was styled like an elaborate Gothic or Victorian castle and was so stunning that just the appearance of the hospital created goosebumps. Ooh. It was like one of these massive buildings that just towered over you. Yeah, it, and it's on a hill, so you know it's going to cast a big, long shadow over mm-hmm. the town. I wonder who what the architect was thinking when he came up with the plans. Like, I want this to look creepy as fuck. It had many criticisms, though, after it was built and was noted that, quote, even many a royal palace is neither so large nor so pretentious architecturally as the hospital at Danvers. And this was quoted by F.B. Sanborn in 1877, who was investigating the extravagant cost before a committee. Cool. But the argument defending its design said, no, the towers and the turrets were necessary to the building's ventilating system, not just ornamental features. Okay. And, you know, those gargoyles, they put out water. you got to have that, you know. I think they're just Fire protection. Cool. I know. They're just cool for that fact alone. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Now, the hospital was designed to be a self-sufficient community and even had a working farm, apple orchards, a nurse's training center, arts and crafts building, and it's a own, gym. Yep. <laughs> its own gym, auditorium, and its own private water supply taken from a local pond. It sounds like a college or a high school it, or something. It, it's an all-sustaining community, and the grounds were beautiful and spacious, allowing the patients to receive therapeutic outdoor exercise and recreation. Now, this massive place was just intended for housing 500 patients, but the reputation of this gorgeous and progressive facility soon became overcrowded. Of course, they always do. It was considered the place to have the best chance to be completely cured and had a wonderful reputation for many years. Many expansions were added, including a maze of underground tunnels. What lunatic asylum doesn't have underground tunnels? It has to have them, like for once, it to be legit. Once you have underground tunnels, Satan has been oh, released. Yeah, yeah. There's so much dark. The stuff monsters are coming come out. out. Oh yeah, you're totally screwed. And this maze of underground tunnels connected all the buildings together. It was said between 1940 to 1950. The facility grew so much it received over 12,000 visitors yearly. Wow. And the mentally ill patients grew to a 2,600 capacity. 2,600 and it was built for 500. Yes. Oh my God. Ay, ay, ay. And 12,000 visitors. 12,000 visitors wow. a year because it was just an awesome place to see wow. as well. Wow. So, so it wasn't even that they had people in the hospital. They were just there to check it out. Yeah. And to, wow. well, and to visit the grounds and yeah. yeah. So people attributed its decline with the admittance of aggressive criminals, the unruly and unwanted beggars and those addicted to drugs and alcohol. Why don't we have those today? Yeah. Because <laughs> you'd be in it. No. <laughs> I, would, I totally would be. You're right. Certain areas in the hospital were poorly run and became a dangerous place regarded with fear. Also, there was a lack of government funding over the years and surprise, a decline yeah, and a decline of adequate staff, which created a situation of neglect. Mm. Many patients were spending the majority of time isolated in spaces the size of a small bathroom and sometimes were forced to share space with no means of privacy. Oh, it's like a jail. Yeah. Hmm. One social worker remembered back in 1945, a shift of only nine workers had the task of taking care of more than 2,300 patients. That's insane. That in, in itself is insane. And more doctors turned to experimental methods, hoping to achieve control over some of these more extreme cases, using shock and hydrotherapies and straitjackets to subdue them. Hmm. It was said that the frontal lobotomies hmm. were perfected here, over 200 performed, and yet many in the process were botched. Do you want to hear a description of the process? Per perfected is a yeah. disturbing word for that. Yeah, go ahead. You want to hear? Yeah. Okay. So those of you who don't want to hear, just skip the next couple <laughs> seconds. Fast forward. Dr. Walter Freeman stated he would simply shove a long rod into the corner of a patient's eye okay, and that's through good. the good, brain, we're good. We're good. <laughs> Sorry. jiggling going. it back and forth <laughs> for a quick second, <laughs> which would cut the brain's connection to the frontal lobe oh and then God. jerk it back out. After taking the rod out, the patient was found to be very calm and non-aggressive. However, 
it was very clear that they were not cured because many would only stare at walls or lost all sense of critical thinking, almost zombie in nature. Oh, my God. So how did they figure out lobotomies? Like, when did the doctors start going, you know what would fix this? Let's just go get an ice pick and just jam it up in the eye and root around in there a little bit. That's going to solve everybody's problems. I know. When did that become a thing? That would be really interesting to find we out. We should do um, the history of lobotomies sometime. The nurses and doctors preferred this method because it made the patients much easier to handle. The procedure soon became popular and commonplace in other psychiatric hospitals nationwide. Thanks, Danvers. Yes. <laughs> Oftentimes, these patients were found wandering the halls aimlessly, some completely naked. Mm. So the conditions became so horrible, a patient would sometimes die forgotten in a random corner only to be found many days later. Oh, wow. Other patients were found lying in their own filth, still bound in their straitjackets. Oh, God. How sad is that? That's horrible. There is testament to how many died on site with a large cemetery on the grounds with only numbers marking the plot. Hmm. In 2002, though, a memorial was built to remember the dead and on it is listed all the patients' names buried in the cemetery. According to some in the later 1950s and 60s, conditions did start to improve again and many workers were sad to see the hospital finally close its doors in 1992. Since its closing, there were numerous attempts of ghost hunting enthusiasts yeah, I bet. who were obsessed with researching the grounds, and many arrests were made to prevent the constant trespassing. It is hard to find definitive proof of hauntings because of the strict private security agency that was hired by the state. One ghost hunting team called the Rhode Island Paranormal Research Group had claimed to have done a study on the site in 1997 but refuse to disclose their findings to anyone. What are they trying to hide? I mean, either exactly. either nothing happened and they want the building to have a notorious a reputation. Yeah. Or something did happen and they're so freaked out they don't want to tell anybody about right. it. Right. Well, you know, I, I would like to think it's the latter because there are countless stories of former patients, locals, and workers who claim the property is one of the most haunted places in the world. Really? People say they hear footsteps and feel as if they are being watched. Because of the massive size of the building, it just feels super creepy even to be in its shadow. I bet. The cemetery is also haunted, with people hearing disembodied voices crying for help. Mm -hmm. And, of course, a strange mist at night from certain areas. Is there perhaps a 10-foot-tall vampire that floats <laughs> around the, the cemetery? Maybe. <laughs> but, you know, have you always noticed, like, the haunted cemeteries always have the mist or the fog? Well, those are just common garden ghosts, Carol. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I know we really need a vampire ghost haunting that one. But there might be zombie ghosts in that cemetery. That I don't be, know. Or witch ghosts. Or witch ghosts. Yeah. One report of seeing a ghost was by Gerald Lavasseur, who as a child lived in a home just behind the property. The ghost, she said, was an older woman who she assumed was from the hospital. One night she woke up when the sheets were pulled off her bed and saw an older lady's face scowling down at her. <laughs> what is it with ghosts pulling the sheets off the bed? I think they're trying to get your attention. Okay. Or maybe they're cold and they... Oh, no. Maybe they need a sheet to go haunting somebody. That's right. Because that's how they yeah. appear. That's what they do. They With throw sheets. a sheet over their entity and then Good they can thinking, be Holly. Seen. Yeah. Well, the ghost is one of the incidents. 
And then there was a comment from John Reed posted at onlyinyourstate.com. And he inquired if anyone else had ever heard the radio turn on by itself in the auditorium of the building at about 3 a.m. Oh, no, he did not. He did. He said it was super loud and freaky and no one was there to do it. That was one of the weirdest things he said to have happened, but by far not the only thing. Of course, some of the scariest places reported were the extensive tunnel systems that ran underneath all the buildings. Mm. Many shared their stories of feeling an evil darkness that was terrifying, hearing footsteps and seeing shadows and movement out of the corner of their eyes. I bet. I bet they did. You know, it's a, it would be the best place to scare yourself down in a little tunnel oh like God. that. Oh, my God. Especially in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Old Salem Village. I mm. mean, come on. doesn't get better. People have also reported seeing lights flickering, doors opening and closing on their own, and of course, ghostly apparitions. Yeah. There is a video taken by one former security guard who, despite the rules, filmed the whole property. It was interesting how many signs were posted prohibiting photography or filming of the grounds and strict warnings for trespassing. I wonder how many local teenagers had their first sup there, their first cigarette. Their first kiss. Their first. So Danvers was sadly demolished in 1992 after sitting vacant for 14 years. The grounds were turned into a luxury apartment complex. But the sad thing is the only thing remaining was the shell of the main building, the cemetery, and the tunnels. So they um, basically destroyed that whole gorgeous facility. But they kept the tunnels, which is where the evil (laughs) lurks. So that's the important thing. Yeah, but people say they've been blocked. Um, so they've blocked off all the tunnels and they're impossible to access now. Oh, that kind of sucks. Because you don't want people running underneath your apartment while you're living there. It would be really hard to even rent those places or why would you want to live there? I have to wonder if the current residents have haunting experiences. In I know. I tried to find it. So yeah. if you live there Please in look. these Danvers you apartments. Can, you can reach us at firesidephantoms at gmail.com. Yeah, they know. Now we get to some crazy coincidences, as it seems this place has some rather peculiar fires. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Now, in 1934, it was reported that a woman managed to sneak matches past a security guard and light a mattress on fire. Oh, my God. Then, in 1941, another fire erupted in a barn on the grounds, and so all the hospital and all the patients had to be evacuated, resulting in a $60,000 loss. After the hospital was shut down and stood vacant, firefighters were called out twice in 2005 because of campfires being started on the property. Yeah, squatters probably. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2007, a body of a small child was found decomposing on the grounds. And later that year, the same year, another report of a 54-year-old man known as Jose Rivera was also found dead on the former grounds of the hospital. Oh, wow. That same year... In April of 2007, a four-alarm fire started at 2 a.m. and injured six firefighters mm. and took several hours to put out. And if you go to danversstatehospital.org and look under the Chronicles tab, there's a list of all kinds of crazy happenings that took place from 1882 to 2007. It's so fun. I'm, I'm going to list wow. off some of these headlines okay, for you. Okay, okay. 1918, the postmaster shoots Danvers inmate. February of 1935, Danvers Hospital inmate killed in elevator mishap. Yeah. January of 1938, Buckley. I don't know who Buckley is. Okay. Buckley, it could be that, you know, 
Remember the bird from Harry Potter, Buckley? No. no. Okay. <laughs> January of 1938. <laughs> I don't remember Buckley. <laughs> <All right. laughs> nice job getting Harry maybe in it's, there, though. Maybe it's Bucky and not Buckley. I don't know. I don't freaking know my Harry anymore. January of 1938, Buckley finds eight murdered and blames former heads of insane hospitals. March 3rd, 1924, a man leaps to his death as wife arrives. <laughs> oh, shit. I love that one. I hope she didn't drive up and just to see him fall off the building. He's like, oh, my God, my wife's here. It's over. <laughs> it's I'm done for. <laughs> In 1950, attendant fined $15 in assault on mental patient. And in October 1960, girl accused of strangling hospitalized. So lots of shady stuff going on in that place. Yeah, no kidding. So listeners, listen up. <laughs> if you want a good Halloween scary movie to go watch, go and rent Session 9 because that film was shot in and on the grounds of Danvers State Mental Hospital. I think I've seen that too. And it is kind of disturbing and scary. Yeah, I hear it's pretty good for a yeah. horror film and yeah. some consider it even a cult classic. Oh, wow. Now, so. Okay. There yeah. you go. That's my terror tip for you. Nice. Thank you for the terror tip. Thanks. I'm so glad that that you did that because obviously it ties directly into my story about the Salem witch trials. Yeah. So um, once again, I just want to say I love witches. Witches are great. Pro witch all the way. Where are Actually, you Holly, <laughs> Holly got bought a Halloween costume. Oh, that's right. And she's going as a witch. I am. Wherever yeah. we think we're going to go. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I, know if we're going anywhere, but she got a witch costume, and it looks pretty awesome, yeah. I must say. We'll put some pictures up. Yes. Yes, we will. It'll be fun. So as I was um, telling Carol earlier that taking on the Salem Witch Trials was a hefty feat because it is such a big story with so many layers and so many characters. So I really just did kind of the bare minimum here just because we, we don't have a show that long. So, <laughs> so I'm just going to kind of give you... Like the Cliff Notes version of what happened. And of course, if you have interest to know more details, there's plenty out there to research and look at and watch. A lot of documentaries about it. A lot of feature films made about it. A lot of books written. You know, the whole thing. Pretty much half the internet is devoted to the Salem Witch Trials. I've decided <laughs> there's so much out there. In January of 1692, 39-year-old Samuel Paris took a job as a town minister of Salem Village, now known as Danvers, Massachusetts, which was a Puritan-based community. That's all I fucked up. Okay. <laughs> the rest of it was you okay. You can't say Puritan and fuck right after, Holly. Come on now. I can, but I'll pay for it in hell later, so it's fine. It's a Puritan it's society. It's a Puritan society. Paris was an English immigrant who dropped out of Harvard and moved to Barbados in 1673 to run a sugar plantation. After a hurricane damaged his plantation in 1680, he decided to move to Salem Village. Once in Salem, he married Elizabeth Eldridge and they had three children. Unfortunately for Samuel, he picked a very contentious town to provide spiritual advisement. The people of Salem Village were unhappy with the division of land between them and Salem Town, which is now actually Salem, Massachusetts today. 
It created many challenges for neighbors to get along. They also disagreed heavily on what to pay the town's ministers, and hence had gone through several ministers before Samuel arrived. Samuel's parishioners were frustrated with his lack of backbone and ability to resolve disputes between them. Well, he didn't have a backbone, but I bet he was carrying a chicken bone. (laughs) Yeah, I bet he was. One day, soon after he took over as the town's minister, Samuel's middle daughter, nine-year-old Betty, and his 11-year-old niece, Abigail Williams, started to act strangely. They started screaming in pain and contorting their bodies in unnatural directions. They wouldn't eat or speak, but instead they barked like dogs, and they would hide under furniture. So the doctors were called in. The doctor didn't really know what was going on. It appeared as though the girls were being abused and or possessed by an unseen entity. So he declared that the girls were victims of witchcraft. In today's point of view, the reason for the girls' fits is unclear. It could be that it was just an overreaction to their overly pious upbringing, or it could be that they were suffering from ergot poisoning, which is a fungus fed on rye. When people eat ergot, they writher around in pain, contort their bodies, and hallucinate. However, this theory had also been refused as the girls had periods of time when they were lucid and behaved normally. If they had ingested ergot poisoning, then they would not have had moments of normalcy and they probably would have died. Many historians believe the girls were simply faking the fits as an attempt to get attention. These fits seemed to really ramp up the most when the girls had guests. When the visitors would leave, the girls would calm back down. Oh. So it kind of it lends itself to the idea that these girls were just playing around. Acting and on hysteria mm-hmm. and yeah. enjoying the attention. Enjoying the attention, for sure. Because it was boring yeah. back in those days. They had no TV. They no, had no TV. Internet. All they had were like their crops and some goats and yeah. Did they have jacks back then and marbles? I don't think that, I don't think so. This was like 1600, so it was pretty bleak. It was really depressing. Sad. Yeah. Of course, the townspeople demanded to know who the bewitching witch was, but the girls remained silent. Samantha. (laughs) (laughs) She's very much a bewitched (laughs) witch. Then Samuel Paris's house slave, Tichaba, that he brought back with him from Barbados came up with an idea. She took some urine from the girls, how she did that I do not know, and baked it into a cake. Then she fed the cake to a dog and waited for the dog to indicate who the witch truly was. I'm not sure how the dog would do this. Would the urine cake allow the dog to like speak English all of a sudden? Is he simply going to point with his nose or raise his eyebrows or maybe pee on somebody's leg? I'm not sure how the dog urine cake thing was going to play out. I wish I, I wish there was a historian that told us what the dog did after he ate the cake. When Samuel found out about Tichaba's urine cake, he interpreted this as witchy as hell, which of course was the very thing the townspeople were looking for, and he was pissed. Oh, I love that. Pissed. <laughs> he was pissed. Good one, Holly. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the girls were receiving mounting pressure to cough up their possessor and point out who the witch was that was doing this to them. So they pointed to Tichaba. <clears throat> Given the whole urine cake incident, Samuel was happy to turn her over to the authorities when the time came. But in yet another Salem household, another storm was brewing. A woman named Mercy Lewis was 18 and a servant girl in Salem Village. Mercy had been a victim of a Native American attack on her former village when she was just a child. She witnessed the execution of several of her family members. Now, as an adult and living in Salem, she learned of another Native American attack in a town not very far away from Salem. She started to convulse and scream, just like Betty and Abigail did, though Mercy's reaction could really just be an extreme case of PTSD after learning of the new attacks. 
Right. Really, it could have been. Yeah. After she started having these fits, a strange thing happened. Other members of the Putnam household in which Mercy worked were also overcome with these fits. It then started to spread to other women in the village. They all pointed to Tichipa as the woman behind the bewitching. Well, yeah. I mean, how much urine did she collect? (laughs) Was she just going from house to house collecting urine samples? Maybe. Maybe. I don't want to point fingers or anything, but I mean, it could be possible. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. (laughs) It's a duck. Makes sense to me. (laughs) Two magistrates then came to Salem Village to oversee the accusations of Tichipa, John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin. As you already talked about, John Hawthorne. That's right. At first, Tichaba claimed she was innocent, but eventually, after the browbeating from the court and the writhering possessed girls staring at her from the audience, she started to talk. I'm sure she saw the writing on the wall and knew she had to confess to try to save her own life. She said that the devil came to her in many forms, like a pig or a big black dog. Or a fly. She didn't mention flies, but I mean, she probably... I mean, this is kind of before Amityville days, so... Maybe they didn't know about the evil flies yet. (laughs) That wasn't reported. (laughs) No. Um, She also claimed she knew the identity of other witches in town. Uh, Of course, the court wanted to know who these other witches were. And she said, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, a tall man who was later determined to be a former Salem minister, as well as a few others. Once they had her confession, they took Tichaba to jail, along with Sarah Good, who was a beggar, and Sarah Osborne, who was a woman of quote-unquote loose morals. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, they both deny that they were witches. Of course. Why would you admit that? Of course. So then Mercy Lewis and another member of the Putnam family accused another woman, Martha Corey, of bewitching them as well. A devout religious woman, Martha Corey, was so highly involved in the church that if people believed that Martha was a witch, then no one was safe from accusations. Even her own husband, Giles Corey, joined the crowds against his wife. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, honey. Yeah. What was it with families back then? I don't know. I, you know, I think a lot of people were just married for survival purposes. I don't think there was much of an emotional bond, I guess. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, Magistrate John Hawthorne used the testimony from those inflicted as something called spectral evidence. It was believed that Satan had made a pact with these accused witches via a blood oath. When the witches signed his book in their blood, they agreed to allow him into their bodies to do his will through them. He could even take on their form as a specter. So according to the dictionary, a specter is, quote, something widely feared as a possible unpleasant or dangerous occurrence, end quote. But in our case, I think it just means to project a translucent ghost-like presence of the witch. So that's like a specter, like just kind of like an apparition, Mm -hmm. I think is what it means. Mercy Lewis and the Putnams accused Martha Corey of being the specter that was haunting them. The more Martha tried to argue against their accusations, the worse the accusations became. As the delirium grew, people started to see evidence of witchcraft everywhere they looked. Even the most outlandish accusations were taken as full truth. There was no critical thought applied, only pure emotion. Fear and panic drove all decision-making. In fact, it is easy for us to see in hindsight that the devil was indeed at work in Salem, Massachusetts, just not in the way that anyone at that time thought. The accused were put into a small, cramped jail to await their trials. The conditions were deplorable. 
It was a sweat lodge in the summer and an ice box in the winter. They had to literally use a pot to piss in, a pot that all the prisoners had to share. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so bad. And I, I can't also, even imagine. Yeah, I also read that the um, that they, if they wanted fresh straw, they had to pay for that for their bedding. Um, they had to pay for their accommodations while they're in jail, like it was a hotel or something. Yeah, nice. Sarah Good was jailed with her four-year-old daughter Dorothy. Dorothy was also accused of being a witch after she told the magistrate that she saw her mother talking to the devil, and two other women claimed that Dorothy had bitten them. Dorothy also said she had a pet snake, a gift from her mother, that sucked blood from her finger and spoke to her. The magistrates took the snake to be Dorothy's familiar, which is a spiritual entity that assists a witch in making magic. Well, that is pretty creepy. A little four-year-old talking about a A snake. A snake, a pet snake, and drinking blood from her finger. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Thankfully, Dorothy was not indicted nor tried for witchcraft. However, finding evidence of familiars was another way for the courts to prove witchcraft. If they found marks on an accused person's body of where an animal or familiar had come and sucked blood from the witch, then that was ample proof of witchcraft. So if the accused had any hickeys, they were totally screwed. Oh, so yeah. So you would have definitely been accused of being a witch. Right? Right? A woman of loose morals yeah. would have hickeys most likely. And oh my God, you've had familiars on all over your body. Yeah. <laughs> I remember how many times, uh, you know, you'd burn your neck with the curling iron and get those looks at school. <laughs> You're like, like, I uh-huh. swear, I swear sure, it's the curling sure iron. that's what that is. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're a witch. <laughs> burn her at the stake. Um, a guy named George Corwin was the sheriff at the time, and he was related to magistrate Jonathan Corwin. After people were accused of witchcraft and confessed to it, Sheriff Corwin would confiscate their property, even though technically this was not okay for him to do, but I do not think people really knew what the rules were. Mm. It is believed that this may be one of the main drivers of the witch trials. I believe it. Mm -hmm. If someone was accused of and confessed to witchcraft, then their property reverted to the sheriff. It was essentially a quick and easy way to appropriate property in a town that was already fighting with each other over land. There was also another dispute in town regarding churches. Now, this is pretty interesting, and I didn't know this part. One side of Salem Village wanted a new church built in the town, while the other side did not. The group against building a new church was happy to walk five miles to church in Salem Town, which is where Salem, Massachusetts is. They did not want to pay more taxes for a new church to be built. This became a very heated argument in Salem Village. Hence, an interesting pattern emerged in who was accused of witchcraft. The overwhelming majority of people accused of witchcraft did not want the new church built, and they were accused by those who did want the church built. Oh, wow. That is super interesting. Isn't that interesting? I have not heard that at all. Yeah. And um, it was the lazy people who just wanted a new church. Well, it was interesting because I got the majority of my information from a documentary I found on YouTube... It was like a National Geographic documentary or something that was really interesting and went to a lot of detail about this. But they show a map of Salem Village and everybody on the west side wanted the church and everybody on the east side did not. But the people on the east side lived closer to Salem, Massachusetts proper. So it wasn't as far for them to walk. So it's like West Side Story. Kind of. So the west was accusing the people on the east side of town of witchcraft cool isn't that interesting that's really interesting i thought that was when i watched it i was like oh shit look at that they should just had some rumbles and be done with it i know they should have had a dance off a dance off and so much better call the good i know
Mercy Lewis and the Putnam family, who were big advocates for having a new church built, were responsible for accusing 181 people in Salem Whoa. Village of witchcraft. So they were really the main culprits, was the Putnam you're family. You're a witch and you're a witch and you're a witch. <laughs> and you get a witchcraft and you get a witchcraft. Um, even some of their extended family members made additional accusations of witchcraft. The judges, John Hawthorne, Samuel Seawall, and William Stoughton presided over the trials. There were no defense attorneys. The defendants just had to defend themselves. Oh, that is so wrong. Yep. Uh, Bridget Bishop was the first to stand trial. She was accused of witchcraft by a man that said Bridget Spector had snuck into his room at night and sat on his stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Way to go, Bridget. Yeah. So um, that just sounds like a sexual fantasy. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, they were just jealous of her name, Bridget Bishop. That's a great name. It is. Uh, one of the afflicted girls sitting in the courtroom started screaming and saying Bridget was bewitching her at that very moment. The screaming girl said Bridget had stuck pins in her hands and then showed her hands to the court. And of course, there were pins and blood coming from her hands. Uh-huh. Historians believed that the women were all suffering from a mass psychogenic disorder in which one sees what is happening around them and takes on the same dramatic traits. Therefore, the women of Salem were just mimicking each other. Everyone was competing for the most attention. Of course, this did not help poor Bridget Bishop as she was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. And the hanging, of course, was not just a sheer drop and snap of the neck. No, it was a swinging hanging. What? In which a person was swung off of the ladder so that their body would swing and the rope would twist around the neck and it would slowly suffocate the person to death. The heavier you were, the quicker it went. Horrible. That is horrible. Why would they want to swing you on the gallows? I think they wanted to torture them. That's my guess. Sick people. I mean, either that or they didn't know they could just do a drop snap of the neck situation. I don't know, but it's pretty dark. It's very, it's a very dark story. It's an incredibly dark story. Yes. So sad. So sad. Those who did confess to witchcraft and outed others as witches were not executed. Those who did not confess were executed. Therefore, Sarah Good and five others followed Bridget to the gallows next. George Burroughs, a former Salem minister, was also accused by Mercy Lewis and others of being a witch. The Putnam family had a personal vendetta against George Burroughs because they gave him money he did not repay. He pointed out that because the town stopped paying his salary, as they could not agree on the amount, he actually could not repay them. This embarrassed the Putnams for some reason, so they had an axe to grind with the former minister. They actually had to hunt George down and return him to Salem as he no longer lived there. They also spread rumors that George seemed to escape many Native American raids in the area, and that must mean he had supernatural witch-like abilities. Because <laughs> <laughs> he survived them, he must have some kind of magic ability. That is crazy. <clears throat> of course, his trials were attended by the affected girls who screamed and freaked out all during his trial. And eight of the confessed witches accused him of being involved. Later, it was determined that he was the tall man that Tichiba had claimed to be a witch. During his trial, George had the gall to stand up and say that the witch specters were nonsense and he did not believe in any of it. Good job. (laughs) But unfortunately, this defense did not help him. No, I don't think so. (laughs) He was found guilty and ordered to hang. 
As he stood on the gallows, George recited the Lord's Prayer to the horror of the crowd. After all, witches cannot recite the Lord's Prayer, Carol. Right. They always <laughs> stumble on you yeah. know, certain phrases yes. and can't get through they the whole just, thing. Just like me, pretty much every time we record, I stumble all through oh, my story. no. It's a sign. It is. I'm, I'm a witch. I'm a witch for Halloween. I'm a witch in my heart. <laughs> Better a witch than a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm that too. No, let's, let's you're not. It. No, no. <laughs> it was an actual way to disprove someone is a witch. The crowd demanded that the execution be stopped. But Cotton Mather, a writer and recorder of the trials, quieted the crowd down and told them that the devil was still very much alive in George and he was just faking his way through it so the crowd stayed silent and George was hanged. Oh, what a jerk. (laughs) I mean, to get through the Lord's Prayer and still have to hang like that. Yeah, how sad is that? It is. Finally, in September of 1692, accused witch Martha Corey's husband, Giles, was also accused of witchcraft. Even though Giles at this point knew that the witchcraft accusations were bullshit, he also knew that if he confessed, that the sheriff could and would take his land. So he refused. They decided to handle this by taking Giles outside, placing some boards on top of his naked body, and then adding stones, boulders, and anything else that would add weight to his body. This was called being... Where's Bridget Bishop when you need her? (laughs) This was called being pressed to death. Right. Yeah. Awful. This course of action would allow Giles time to think about his situation and to confess as it became more apparent he could not take on any more weight. Giles knew they wanted his land and that if he gave in and confessed, then they would take it and leave his family with nothing. So he refused to submit, which is really impressive if you think about that. At one point, there was so much weight on him that his tongue was sticking out of his mouth and the sheriff forced it back in with his cane. Ew. Fucker. So the sheriff would check in with Giles a few times a day to see if he had changed his mind about confessing, to which Giles would just say, more weight. Ew. I love it. (laughs) What a badass. He sounds awesome. He is awesome. So um, at, the, at times, the sheriff would even stand on Giles himself. It took three days for Giles to die in this manner. Three long, torturous, horrific days being pressed to death. The entire time, he did not cry out in pain. He died keeping his full estate intact for his family, and he never admitted that he was a witch. It was his death that historians believe started to turn the tide of public support for the witch trials. Unfortunately, three days later, Giles' wife, Martha, also met her fate at the gallows of Salem Village. She, too, never confessed to being a witch. So, and if you don't confess to being a witch, you get to keep your property. But if they're both dead, then, then, well, then the family inherits your property. Okay. But if you confess, then they can take your property. That was, it sounds like that, those were the rules. After more and more executions started to happen, the people of Salem started to change their minds about what was going on, especially with Giles and the way he died. There had been a silent group within Salem that wanted to stop the trials, but were waiting for the right moment to speak up as to avoid being accused of witchcraft themselves. They knew it was now or never, and they started to voice their concerns about what was happening. The court started taking on criticism by the townspeople and prominent writers as far away as Boston. Another confessed witch, Margaret Jacobs, who had accused both the minister George Burroughs as well as her own grandfather of witchcraft, was starting to feel rather guilty about what she had done and recanted her confession. 
She said she would rather die than send anyone else to their death, which is pretty ballsy. Um, soon, many of the other confessed witches began to recant. The judges did not like this, so they started to send the confessors to trial anyway, instead of rewarding them for coming forward with confessions and letting them live. After this, no one else confessed. So when the confessors were like, you know what, fuck you guys, I'm not a witch, I, these people are innocent, then the judges were like, no, nope, too late, we're putting you on trial now because you recanted your confession, and obviously the devil's still working your heart. Oh my goodness. They're so, just so corrupt. Yeah. Uh, by the end, and I'm I'm surprised that people just didn't see through that. Well, I guess you got to think of the time too. I mean, the big theme back then was was Satan or, or God. So you're either for God, yeah, and what's holy and just, or you're Satan and you're yeah. evil and deserve you, to die. Wa- if you want to be saved, you better not have anything to do with witchcraft. That's your biggest threat. That and you know natural mm-hmm. factors around you, but. That was their biggest psychological issue, I would guess. You know, by the end of October 1692, the governor ended the trials and disbanded the court. However, the trials resumed in regular court, but this time spectral evidence was not allowed in. There were still a lot of people who had been accused and needed their day in court. As the trials continued, three more people were convicted, but the governor, who was not in support of the trials, gave them a reprieve. This enraged Judge William Stoughton. He was a true believer that the court was eradicating witches from Salem. Eventually, the remaining accused witches were released, though it took a while to do so, and in fact, a few of them died while waiting to be released. It was also customary for the jailers to pay for their board while in jail, so some had to come up with the money to pay for their jail fees before they could be let go. The families of the executed had to pay the court for the executions. Can you believe how fucked up That's that is? That's so messed up. I would it just say so no. messed up. But then I guess they would just come take your land Yeah, again. they would just come maybe throw you in jail. Like, who knows? I don't know how it worked back then, but you had to pay for the false execution of your family member. I wonder how many people just disappeared and never came back to oh that town. God. I would. I would just... I would just say, this town is crazy. I'm leaving. No kidding. I'm going to Boston. Thank you. I'm going to throw some tea into the bay. Also, it was a really treacherous and dangerous time. Like, there was a lot of ways to die back in these days. So it was probably hard to travel mm-hmm. uh, and make it successfully. I don't know. I don't know. And people wanted to be around their family. They wanted to be around their family. So they could accuse them of witchery. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so they have a scapegoat in case they need one at any time. Tichaba, the first to be accused, was let go. But she was sent to a new home to work because Samuel Paris made it very clear he did not want her back. Cannot get over those urine cakes. Poor Tichaba. No. I wonder if that's where the term urine cake comes from. (laughs) You know, they put urine cakes into urinals. Oh. Those little cakes that absorb all the urine. That's what they're called? Urine cakes? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I did not know that. You should text Tony right now and ask him. (laughs) (laughs) We don't use urine cakes in our our toilet bowl. You should just text him and say, Tony, do you want me to pick up some urine cakes on the way home? (laughs) And see what he says. (laughs) See what he says. Okay, I'm going to do it right now. (laughs) He's going to be like, sicko. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is when I text, it always changes what I'm saying. So it says, I'm licking licking up some urine cakes. It always changes what I'm going to say. When all was said and done, more than 200 people had been accused of witchcraft. 30 were tried and found guilty, 19 were executed by hanging, and one was pressed to death for a grand total of 20, 14 women and 6 men. 
After the 1692 witch trials, the legal system stopped persecuting anyone for witchcraft. After realizing the horror and shame of what had happened in Salem Village, the idea of accusing anyone of witchcraft fell grossly out of favor. In 1697, Judge Samuel Sewell asked the public for their pardon of his sins regarding the witch trials. He was one of the three judges overseeing the, the and trial. And did they say, no, you mother? <laughs> I don't know You're what they gonna said. You're going to be hung right now. <laughs> Get him. No, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think so. Okay. In 1703, the courts threw out most of the evidence that was used in the witch trials. In 1706, accuser Ann Putnam made a formal apology to her church and the families of the victims. She claimed she was deluded by Satan. In 1711, money was paid out to some of the accused families, but Sheriff Corwin did not pay back the property he took during the trials, <gasps> which I don't know how he got away with that. He probably had some political power strings that he pulled, my He guesses. had blackmail on everybody. Maybe. He'd be like, remember that time I pulled you over and you were doing yeah. the dirty in the back seat? <laughs> and your horse-drawn wagon? <laughs> I got those pictures. You want me to release them on the bulletin board at church? You're no Puritan. You're no Puritan. I'll do it. <laughs> In 1717, Magistrate Hawthorne died in Salem. He was the judge that ordered the majority of the hangings. He never apologized. <laughs> nope. He never did. Nope. And his great-grandson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, of course, wrote The House right. of Seven Gables. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he oh, actually wrote a bunch of shit. I accidentally, I accidentally texted Tony Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> He's like, what is going on with I'm her? I'm sure he's like, Oh, I forgot. What? He's at, you know what he's doing right now? He's, huh. I am so bad. Holly, he's on a work call right now. And he's, and you're, te <laughs> and you're texting him and he's like, urine cakes. What? And Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nathaniel Hawthorne. What is she doing? Yeah. I thought I was doing a Google search, but. Yeah. <laughs> you're just texting him. I'm really bad. So there are many haunted spots in Salem that are related to the Salem witch trials. But instead of going into all of them here, um, I put up a link on our website that can show you where to go for good haunted fun in Salem. Um, like I was telling you earlier, earlier, Carol, I've been to Salem and they have a um, they have a park where they have the names of all of the victims of the witch trials. Um, their names are carved on like a stone bench and each one of them have their own bench. Um, it's just it's so sad and it's so, um, you know, I guess if you're thinking about it, we're. People are supposed to be intelligent and have humanity. And yet in this situation, all of those factors seem to fail. Right. And um, I guess it's just one of those things that um, we've all learned that lesson. And even though it happened so long ago in a, in a small town, it is still one of those things that everyone knows that story. Everyone knows a lesson from that story. That's true. And it's just a study of human behavior when it gets um, consistently bigger and bigger and bigger with with this kind of hysteria that causes situations to just kind of spin out of control like this you know it's kind of like a rave <laughs> it's kind of like a rave well, <laughs> you so know, you think they all got high start, on lsd no. and started no, dancing with I, each other i'm saying like when you get together with a group and you've got energy and passion Yes. It's contagious and it feeds off of each yeah, other. Yeah, you, you bounce that energy off of each other. So that's how that delirium and that, that hysteria just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you feel like you, you're part of a cause and you're, and you're part of something that's really good and going to change the world, yeah. 
um, and you truly believe that, yeah, there there's no greater motivator than that, right? And sometimes it can really take you on a track that all of a sudden you look back and you're like, oh, I didn't mean to go to Canada. <laughs> oh, wait, I did. No, uh, right. I meant to just go to Kentucky. And uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know how I got here. And then you realize too late how far you went with something. Right. And it wasn't it wasn't the pure intention that you had right. to begin with, with maybe you just thought, oh, I just wanted a little attention. The town was boring. This was fun. Right. And now all of a sudden I've been responsible for people's death. Right. Right. It just spiraled out of control. I think a lot of cults talk about that. That's why I don't watch soap operas. Because you never know <laughs> where they're yeah, going to lead you. Absolutely. But I think a lot of cults are like that where they yeah. have the same idea and the same value set of values. Mm -hmm. And they're all um, pursuing that. Yeah. And then it just kind of ends up it's like it's building up to a point on a cliff and then it just kind of goes over the cliff yeah it, it kind of builds up and they're like well we can't sustain this let's all yeah. drink the kool-aid <laughs> yeah exactly Bye bye. <laughs> so anyway that is the salem witch trials it's a very cliff notey version of the salem witch trials like i said there's a lot of people a lot of stories like a lot of characters in this story a lot of people i didn't even touch on i just kind of highlighted a few of them but um, the story itself is so, there's so many factors that were going into setting the scene here, the, the inner city squabbles, the, the religious ideology at the time, the political ideology at the time, just like people never assuming that these girls might be just making this up. Right. You Cause know? you always want to believe that your children don't lie. Right. I mean, you want to believe they're innocent. Yeah. And and these girls don't know that what they're doing is probably going to result in mm -hmm. um, a really bad situation. So, I mean, it just, it was the perfect storm. Right. Is what it was. It was the perfect storm. Well, it was a great story. Perfect Thank for you. Halloween. I know. And glad we were able to help shed some light on yeah. these trials because it was a really horrific time. And it's amazing how we go through in society different periods of time where society does kind of escalate into um, a frenzy. And yeah. we just uh, are noticing maybe some of that happening now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. But um, either way, it's just um, something that we want to watch out for. I always want to, if somebody has different beliefs than me, I always want to make sure I'm listening and yeah. understanding. And Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's important to stay open to all perspectives and... Even though they're evil. <laughs> Get them. I like Lunatic better. It's got more of a crazy, scary vibe to it. It does. Yeah. Actually, I don't know what they changed it to. I probably should look that up. <laughs> Shouldn't I? Um, well, here's what we'll do. If you're really interested in knowing what the name was changed to, just go ahead on to Google and put that in there and find out for yourselves. Actually, <laughs> this I is know not what a full is. service podcast. I just realized this cord's coming between my legs. I'm like, what? What's feeling so good oh, going up there? God. <laughs> it's already gone downhill, folks, and we're bad. only like five it's seconds into bad. the show. It's already there. You said that was my terror tip, and I thought that was just like you. Okay, so that was Danvers Lunatic Asylum. Woo! Do you want to say something else? <laughs> well, <clears throat> yes, but you would think the dog would just need to sniff the urine, not eat a urine cake, and then decide who it Well, it to. deserves a treat for all the work <laughs> it's doing, Holly, don't you think? 
Um, you know what I noticed, Holly, is that when you cuss, it's nice. It's like... <laughs> As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts, and all dolls are definitely haunted. Hey guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at firesidephantoms. If you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com, and you may hear it on a future episode.